Welcome to this week's episode of the Real Science Podcast. I'm the host, Josh McIntyre. So this week we've got a story on synthetic genomes, uh, another story on MDMA being used in PTSD treatments, and finally I've got another story about um, DNA being used to arrest somebody and the whole issue with GEDmatch and stuff like that. So we'll get to that in just a second. Let's start off with the synthetic genome. So some researchers in Cambridge um, have created the synthetic genome for an E. coli, an e. coli bacteria. And part of the reason they did it is that this researcher, the lead researcher, Dr. Joseph Chin, um, has an interest in why nature makes so many duplicates of things. So one of the things and what they focused on was that there are codons So um, in genetics. And the codons are just the three-letter um, alphabets that code for amino acids when it comes to building a protein. So just so I'll go back over that a little bit, but genes are made up of nucleotides, which are adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine, or ATGC. And those nucleotides are arranged into certain letter, into certain orientations for genes. And then the genes are then read, turned into RNA, and the RNA is read by ribosomes. And then the ribosomes read the RNA and use that as an instruction template to create proteins. And so the way the proteins are created, or the way that the proteins are dictated to, is not just one letter at a time, but these three-lettered groups of RNA, which are translated from, or transcribed rather, from DNA. And so the DNA codons are things like ATT, which codes for isoleucine. But when I'm talking about duplication, the duplication is that ATT codes for isoleucine, but so does ATC, and so does ATA. And all together, there's 61 codons that code for about 20, that code for 20 amino acids. And then there's three additional codons that are stop codons. Um, and so, again, Dr. Joseph Chin was mostly interested in why is there so much duplication? And if you changed out ATT for ATC, would there be a difference? Would it matter? So what they've done is they've created a 4 million base pair uh, genome for E. coli to replace the, the genome that it has. And in doing this, or when they did this, they basically had the entire genome written out and they did you know, effectively a, a find and replace function in the genome. And they went in and replaced certain codons for other um, duplicate codons. And so what they've done is they've effectively taken a, an alphabet of 64 codons, um, again, 61 for amino acids and three stop codons, and they've eliminated three out of the alphabet basically. So now the whole entire um, codon arrangement is only 61 codons instead of 64. And so the, what they're trying to do is understand if this, this duplication actually is important in any way. So then the next part was then they had to generate the new um, genome, but being 4 million base pairs and being an entire genome, it's not easy to necessarily insert the whole genome in one piece into the E. coli bacteria or into the bacteria generally. So you can do, and I've done this in lab, you can do you know, a couple thousand base pairs at a time and use gene consets or use vectors to, to insert those into bacteria, um, have them express them. But usually that's done as a plasmid, which is an extra chromosomal bit. So it's not nestled in the actual genome. So doing what they've done is, is a lot more complicated. But the way they went about it, because it's so big, they couldn't, again, just stick the entire genome in at once. They cut the genome that they made into several sections and, and then they introduced each section into different bacteria and then had those bacteria basically combine and create an output for 
a new bacteria that had sections A and sections B and section C in it. And so they kind of did that until they had found that all the whole genome was in the new bacteria. So now they've got a bacteria with a synthetic genome that only has 61 codons. They called it SYN61 because they're super original because they're scientists. And again, it's a 4 million base pair long genome, which is much bigger than any synthetic genome that's ever been created before. In the past, about nine years ago, another experiment was performed, I think it was at Harvard, um, and they created a 1 million base pair long genome and inserted that into a bacteria. It wasn't E. coli, it was a Mycocetes bacteria. Um, but so that was done about nine years ago. And so obviously this is, you know, four times larger. It's a much bigger deal just in comparison of length, but also in, in the, the work around that they had to do to get the entire genome in there. But what's also really interesting is that obviously at the end of it, you want a lot of bacteria and that's what they got. They got a living bacteria, but it seems to grow slightly slower, not a lot slower, about 1.6 times, um, slow. So it's, it's, just just a little bit slower um division time for an average for most e coli i think for natural e coli is about once every 20 minutes they'll replicate or they'll divide um and so these were i don't know the actual numbers but just a little bit slower than that so probably once every 30 minutes or so maybe um i'm sure the math doesn't work out on that but Basically, they were a little bit slower, and the other thing that changed was that they report in the article, and it was, I'm sure there's other things that probably were affected too, but the other thing they report is the uh, shape of the bacteria. So instead of being kind of a normal round cell, basically, it became more of a rod shape, and we don't fully know why that is, though it seems to be the only real change, obviously a synthetic genome, but the, other the only change in their synthetic genome is this reduction in the number of codons. And so we know that codons, like I said, recruit certain amino acids, but there must be some other level of instruction in that, in picking different codons that instruct kind of how the actual protein is put together. Because we know that it's very difficult to, um, to predict what a protein will look like based on just the gene sequence. And so there must be something to it to which codon. It must not just be a single, you know, one for one or something like that. There must be some reason for this duplication of codons. And obviously, hopefully this kind of work will get to get to a better understanding of that in the future. And as more work like this keeps going on. So the other thing that's really impressive with this work is that when they inserted this, this uh, synthetic genome, and then they got the whole genome in there because they'd inserted piecemeal into different bacteria and combined them, when they got the whole genome together, then they obviously were resequencing constantly during the whole time. They only found eight individual changes in the genome um, when they had the full synthetic genome in there, which is quite impressive. Um, four of them seem to have been entered uh, just in the creation of the genome itself, and then other four during changes and during um, replication um, in the bacteria as well. But all the changes are in non-coding regions. So that's really useful. It's obviously helpful because then they, they can not worry about the actual genes they put in. It's kind of an extracellular part that might be a, a recruiter or something like that. Um, again, they don't quite specify where the changes are. They might in the supplemental material, but I didn't go through all of that. Um, so the important thing, though, being is that these changes don't have any real effect on the actual genome or the gene expression itself. But it's also quite impressive that there's only eight changes in the amount of... Um, the amount of generations that would have been needed of bacteria to go through that there wouldn't have been that many changes. So that's that's a quite a big deal as well. 
obviously means that their work is uh, is quite quite good and seems to have worked um, quite well and, and that we can be quite sure of what the synthetic genome is, that there wasn't a lot of other changes going on. So there's a few reasons why this work is really impressive. Um, firstly, there's a pure research perspective that just creating a synthetic genome and inserting it into a living bacteria is interesting. And it brings up the question of, is this synthetic life or not? I lean personally lean more towards the fact that it's not synthetic life um, because it was a live thing and we've just tinkered with it. Um, we've been doing things like that. I would lean more towards it being just genetically modified, but obviously to an extreme degree. But I do th think there is kind of false or either way on whether it's synthetic life at that point. Um, so that's interesting. It's obviously just by itself again, and there's, that's just pure research. But there's also potential corporate interests um, and potential uses for this and in, in outside of just academia. So a lot of the insulin, or pretty much I think all of the insulin that we make now that people, if you have type 1 diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes, you would use insulin. Um, and most of that insulin comes from bacteria. So what people have done is inserted the human gene for insulin production into E. coli bacteria, and then you grow the E. coli in high density in vats, and then you can use a purification process to pull that insulin back out so that when people are taking insulin, it's pure human insulin, and not um, used, used to be in the past, at one point it was pig insulin um, that we were basically extracting out of pigs, um, which had its own problems because people could actually develop an allergy to pigs as well, and then they would be able to not use the insulin anymore, which kind of sucks. Um, so there's that. So again, so you can use E. coli to produce insulin now, but one of the issues is that if a virus was to get into the process somewhere, it can shut down the whole process of insulin production for potentially weeks um, while they have to go through and re-sterilize the entire system and try and cleanse the whole system from, cleanse the virus from the system that would be coming in and destroying the bacteria. So that's a possible issue. The other thing that's really neat is so, and also, oh, so the reason that's important is because if you could change the genome to such a degree that it only used you know, certain codons for certain things, you could potentially build a way that these bacteria would be resistant to viruses so that if a virus was to get into the system, it wouldn't pose as big of a threat and it wouldn't be as much of an issue. Obviously, you would still need to keep clean because the viruses could potentially mutate or adapt to that environment. Um, but again, potential use there. The other thing that's also possible too is that you can actually alter the genome in such a degree, again, changing these codons, potentially creating new codons, not sure about that, but you could potentially alter the codons that are used so that the genes from these bacteria, if these bacteria were to get into the environment, you could effectively create a firewall where even if these genes were shared with other bacteria, the other bacteria wouldn't be able to utilize them in any way. Again, creating just some kind of a firewall and a control for the genes that are being created in the lab. And because bacteria will share genes quite readily sometimes, this could be quite useful just to keep those from really getting into a wild population. Um, so again, that's just a really neat research story in itself. Um, it's quite a big deal. I wouldn't be surprised if we see this 4 million base pair record broken the next few years. There's a lot more research going on at, at Harvard, and I think Yale was the other research institution that had a lot of um, synthetic biology stuff going on. So definitely be on the lookout for that, and it will probably change our understanding of genetics along with um, the Earth Biogenome Project that should be, that's still picking up steam. By the way, I wrote an article on that that's up on lateralmagazine.com. Check out my Twitter. I've retweeted uh, a link to it there. 
at McIntyre Science. You can go have a read for that. It's just about a thousand words, but um, nonetheless, I think an interesting project that's underway. So I think I'll move on to the next story. So MDMA as psychotherapy. So post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is a serious debilitating disorder with lifetime prevalence. It's estimated to be at nearly 4% globally and over 8% in the USA. Uh, symptoms of PTSD include intrusive thoughts and memories, negative effects on cognition and mood, hyperarousal and reactivity, and avoidance that do not remit for at least one month subsequent to exposure of a traumatic event. Uh, individuals with PTSD may experience a substantial reduction in quality of life and relationships, and the disability resulting from PTSD can have further negative consequences such as obesity, hypertension, comorbid mental health conditions, and suicidality. In addition, these profound costs to individuals with PTSD, this order also exerts a substantial economic toll through lost productivity and treatment costs. So that's just straight from the article itself. Um, again, I'll have a link to this article as well as all the previous article as well in the show notes. Um, so PTSD has been widely used. Um, there's a, a couple of treatments for it. It's not been widely used. Um, there's a couple of treatments for PTSD that are widely used. Um, most of it is psychotherapies. Um, there's a f there's two medications that are on the that are FDA approved for treatment of PTSD, but apparently only about they only work maybe about forty percent of the time, um, and so there's a lot of patients that don't get adequate response to the treatment that's out there, um, and they also require long time if not lifetime um, taking of the treatments as well, which I think personally kind of defeats the purpose if you have to be on a treatment for life there should be some other way um, around that personally um, i'm not a pharmacist um, biochemist but I, I know there's there's issues with that uh, argument as well um, but again i think you should be able to hopefully resume a normal life without having to take a pill for it it's not it's not high blood pressure or something like that there should be another way around fixing that um, but there's a sizable portion of PTSD um, patients who are resistant to the uh, pharmacological aids to medication. Um, and so there are some shortcomings and, and hopefully there should be some, some new treatments that uh, would be on the way. And so this uh, treatment itself is using MDMA and it was primarily focused on by uh, MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're an interesting organization in themselves, but they talk about how they're trying to use PTSD basically to treat, or sorry, using MDMA to treat PTSD. Too many acronyms to keep it, my hand on. Um, so just a little bit of background on MDMA. It was first synthesized in 1912 by Merck, um, but it wasn't until like the early 70s when it was first used in combination with, micro, with uh, psychotherapy. Um, there's some case reports uh, of people using it for therapeutic benefits and um, in like spousal cases like that, but it was just done in some private clinics. Um, people will give it during like marriage counseling and then do long bouts of marriage counseling while using it. Um, obviously, hopefully not the psychotherapist, though that might have been happening as well. Um, but then the recreational use of ecstasy tablets in somewhere around the 1980s or the beginning of the 1980s um, led to a classification of Schedule 1, led to it being classified as a Schedule 1 controlled substance in 1985. Um, which Schedule 1 means that it has no medical benefits and is basically only harmful. It's on the same list as marijuana, so that kind of gives you some idea that 
Schedule 1 is a bit arbitrary. Um, but this is a listing by the FDA and basically means that you can't have it or do any medical research with it at all, um, which is yeah, a mess and just a kind of mess of red tape. And also because the U.S. made it Schedule 1, they kind of impose that onto a lot of other countries for trade purposes, that if you are using these drugs, we won't trade with you, yada, yada. And that kind of thing has spiraled around the world, hampering research and, and other kind of just looking into it. MAPS um, filed a master drug file, drug master file rather, application 1986, um, followed by it. And then they eventually they followed up with an investigational new drug application in 2001. Um, embarking an FDA drug development process to study the safety and efficacy of MDMA as an, as an adjunct to psychotherapy for PTSD. So the article itself that I'll link to is about six randomized double-blind control clinical trials at five different study sites. Um, they were started in 2004 to February of 2017, um, and they use active doses of MDMA that were between 75 and 125 milligrams on 72 patients along with a placebo or a control dose of either zero or up to 40 milligrams, which is supposed to not be psychoactive, and they had 31 control patients altogether. The patients were um, administered individual PTSD during manualized psychotherapy sessions in two or three eight-hour sessions that were spaced about a month apart. Um, previous to each uh, MDMA session, they had uh, at least three sessions just with a... Um, was a psychotherapist first, and then between each session, they would have three or four um, non-drug 90-minute therapy sessions. So ideally, if these people are still going through a lot of therapy. Also, they, they would keep them once they took the MDMA. They would hang out. They were allowed to listen to music. They would set up a, in a room where there was a couch, chairs, and stuff like that, and there was paintings on the wall so they could, they could talk to the therapist, but they were also just kind of in a calm, controlled environment. Um, and then following that, they would stay the night at the research institute where they were at, and they would be spoken to and, and debriefed again the next morning. And then for the week following the, um, the MDMA exposure, they were talked to at least once a day um, by a psychotherapist who was checking in on them, making sure that they were all right. And they would also be um, on the side of that, they would also be surveyed by an independent person who was not associated with the trial directly, just on their kind of peace of mind and kind of how they were doing. And so the MDMA psychotherapy assisted or MDMA assisted psychotherapy systems were based on a method developed by MAPS. Um, and so the method includes periods of introspection, alternating with periods of communication between the therapist and the participant. The method is aimed at allowing participants to revisit traumatic experiences while staying emotionally engaged, even during intense feelings of anxiety, pain, or grief without feeling overwhelmed. The, these experimental sessions were followed by, again, like I said, overnight stay, 90-minute psychotherapy session aimed at integrating the psychedelic experience, and the research found that the treatments appeared to be both safe and effective. After two experimental sessions, approximately 50% of participants who received the active doses of MDMA no longer met PTSD diagnostic criteria compared to the 23 participants who received the placebo. So there obviously seems to be something going on to this. Like I said, there was a total of six, um, six phase two clinical trials that were going on. Um, and so MDMA is, this is a quote from one of the researchers, um, MDMA is a powerful substance showing great promise as treatment for PTSD when combined with psychotherapy. 
The controlled clinical context and purity of the drug are critical components of the positive outcomes through the studies. Um, and although MDMA treatment was generally well tolerated, participants who received the drug were most likely to report more likely to report side effects such as anxiety, dizziness, jaw clenching, lack of appetite, and nausea. So there's obviously some downsides, but it seems like overall 50% being not having PTSD symptoms anymore following treatment, following two to three treatments is pretty good. Obviously, it's an intensive, you know, couple months where they're meeting once a week. At least, if not, in talking to a, a therapist probably every day for you know sometimes some points of that, so it is still an intense um, setup, but potentially with a great outcome to it. Where if you know you can spend a couple of months going through treatment and then not be suffering from PTSD following that treatment, that's a pretty good deal. Results from a phase two trial are exceptional for PTSD treatment. But the findings will need to be replicated on a larger number of people in the phase three trial. Phase two trials um, enrolled mostly white participants as well, lacking diversity in race and ethnicity. So future studies in the phase three trial will need to enroll more people of color to know if the treatment will have the same effect on them. MAPS is already currently preparing for phase three trials, um, which were required to develop MDMA-assisted psychotherapy into an FDA-approved treatment for PTSD. Um, but it's they want to point out, um, and again, one of the lead researchers in this from MAPS says it's taken decades to reach this point for MDMA drug development, and they're seeing a shift in public opinion as scientific evidence builds to support the use of MDMA and psychedelics for treating mental health conditions. They're exciting times, um, and we could very well be likely on the cusp of a new paradigm for psychiatric medicine. So again, just a really, really interesting story um, for phase three clinical trials to start using MDMA to treat people with PTSD. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if in the next the phase three trials will take several years to complete, so we might hopefully have something actually as available of a treatment if it works and it is shown to work well, um, probably within maybe the next uh, eight to 10 years, if I had to guess, um, but it's still gonna be quite a while away. There's a lot of paperwork associated with the FDA approval process, and obviously a lot of, of trials of large numbers of people. So again, they only had about 100 people in these phase two trials. So I think the numbers will have to be somewhere in a couple thousand. Um, don't quote me on that, but it will be a large increase and they're gonna have to try out obviously a whole bunch of different people. There were uh, men and women in this study, so hopefully that should be okay. Um, they will continue doing that, but again, like I said, they will have to have people of color. And so far it's been treated with, uh, with soldiers and first responders. Um, I know one case, there was an episode on Joe Rogan where one of the vice reporters was actually part of the phase two trial and he saw um, a decrease in his symptomology, though he wasn't um, completely PTSD free. Um, but that's definitely uh, worth a listen to if you get a chance to. Um, and Vice has done some reporting on this as well. So there's definitely some more reading to be done. But yeah, I'll link to the, this article by itself. So with that, I'll move on to the last the last story. And so the last story is one that is familiar if you've been paying attention to listening to this show maybe, or if you've been paying attention to just DNA being used to solve crimes. This one's a little bit different. Um, there's actually some breaking news that happened yesterday. Um, BuzzFeed's actually been doing some quite some good reporting on this. But typically what's been done is that this kind of using GEDmatch and using DNA to solve decades old um, murders and sexual assaults and stuff like that. 
but I'll, I'll get into that just in a second. So police in Centerville are asking for the public's help. So this, this article was published in uh, November 18, 2018. Um, police in Centerville are looking for help finding someone who they believe broke into a church and choked a 71-year-old woman as she was playing an organ late Saturday night. The woman reported she was practicing organ at 9 p.m. when she heard loud pounding for several minutes on a locked door of the Chapel Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. About half an hour later, an unknown individual in a gray hooded sweatshirt attacked her from behind and choked her, forcing her to lose consciousness at a time. For a time, the assault was not a sexual nature. He said the police don't know the gender of the alleged attacker. We're still looking at what the motive is. This is just a bizarre case. So a spokeswoman for the church declined to comment on the reported assault, and the woman whose name has not been released sustained minor injuries to her neck and is expected to make a full recovery. Detectives said the alleged attacker has an average-sized body, average-sized build. Um, they discovered a rock was thrown through a window on the east side of the church, and I believe how, that's how the intruder got into the chapel. So, so far, just, again, slightly weird case, um, but nothing too crazy. But then April 24th of 2019, police on Wednesday arrested a teenager who they said strangled a 71-year-old woman while practicing the organ. They found the 17-year-old boy using DNA evidence found at the scene. Centerville teen, the Centerville teen was arrested without incident at Kaysville and booked into Juvenile Detention Center for investigation of aggravated burglary and aggravated assault. His name was not released. Centerville detectives have been working diligently in this case since it occurred and developed a person of interest. Detectives were able to collect DNA evidence left behind on discarded objects by the person of interest, which were sent to the state lab for processing. The investigation took several months, but it remained a priority for us, the police said. So we've been informed that this victim of the arrest and she's expressed, oh, we've informed the victim of the incident of the arrest and she expressed relief. So the 71 year old is quite happy. So then May 13th, 2019. So again, this is kind of going back into it a little bit more. Um, the detectives began, as they began investigating the case, they found a rock thrown through the window and a garbage can that the suspect stood on to get into the window. During the initial investigation, blood was found on the windowsill and on the doorknob to open the door to exit the, the room. The blood was sent to the Utah State Crime Lab, which was being analyzed, but it came up, it was in, sent into the DNA, FBI's DNA database and came up empty. Um, they began using, looking into using genealogy and DNA as a means of pointing us in the right direction to locate a suspect. So this is where it becomes an issue. DNA was sent to the Parabon Labs in Virginia. Information generated from that company was uploaded to GEDmatch and was investigated by a team of genealogists led by C.C. Moore for work, who worked for Parabon Labs. GEDmatch is an open DNA database. As we know about, um, if you get your data back from 23andMe or from Ancestry.com or whatever, you can upload it to GEDmatch, which is an open source um, database. And you can get kind of additional information on that as far as who you're related to because Family Tree only has the access they have generated in their own files. 23andMe again only has the access they have generated in their own files. GenMatch is kind of more of a pooling of that and you can upload to it. And this is how they found uh, Joseph James D'Angelo, who's also known as the Golden State Killer, who uh, committed several um, rapes and killed at least a dozen people in California through the 70s and 80s. So that kind of was the start of kind of this understanding of using GEDmatch. Um, since then, this is the, the way that people have found suspects in the last, uh, last year or so since his arrest. 
um, and has been solving a lot of decades-old kind of um, cold cases as well. But what happened was, um, in this case, like I said, it wasn't a rape, it wasn't a murder, and so it's different, and people are starting to get kind of um, irate that um, this thing that wasn't an exclusive murder or violent crime was then, GEDmatch was then used to locate this person. So it, there's another article I've got a link to as well. Um, basically, they used this, they identified who the teen was, and then they had someone who works at the, uh, they said he's a school research, resource officer, watched the uh, alleged student and watched him have lunch. Uh, he had a juice box and a small milk container and he threw those items in the garbage and then so the school resource officer um, went to the garbage and grabbed those out and sent them to the police to then double check DNA, which is generally the case. So then what happens, then the, the sheriff went to the CEO of GEDmatch himself and basically pleaded that we be allowed that they be allowed to upload this person's DNA, even though it's not a violent crime, into the database, um, which is against the terms and conditions of how the data is supposed to be uploaded to GEDmatch in the first place. Um, but he pled a case that we we think this person's going to attack again. Um, we think that this is going to be an ongoing problem, and so we would like you know a single exception in this case. People got pissed about that because then they saw it as kind of um, a slippery slope or an eroding of kind of what's supposed to happen. And so then yesterday, GenMatch actually went and changed their terms and conditions in response to kind of the backlash of this person being arrested. So the boy is currently um, in juvenile detention. Um, he seems guilty. They've obviously got his DNA at the scene and they've linked it already. So uh, as far as I know, he will most likely be... Um, be sent to prison for this um we'll wait to see that'll be a few months down the road but the immediate effect is the GEDmatch has gone through and changed their terms and conditions and what they've basically done is that you can now opt out you are not automatically opted in you're not automatically part of the dna that um, police can search so now you can opt out that when police upload dna they can't access your data in particular which is then going to be an issue and uh, an interview that I'll put a link to um, for an article on this that BuzzFeed did and they talked to detect uh, retired detective um, Paul Holes who is famous for being part of the Golden State Killer case he's also got his own podcast now with Billy Jensen and they talk about um, unsolved murders at the moment um, uh, called the murder squad but he said that he thinks that this kind of move where people are going to start removing their data basically from these databases is going to result in police issuing warrants to GEDmatch and potentially pursuing more warrants with 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Um, both of these companies have been resistant to hand over data or work with police or FBI, um, citing issues of privacy. Um, so we'll see what happens. And it, it, he doesn't think it'll be too surprising that if in the next few years we see um, a case like this making its way to the Supreme Court as to whether the police have the authority or the ability to access this kind of um, DNA that GEDmatch and 23andMe and stuff have to find suspects. Um, we'll see how that comes down. I, everyone can, I think, most people can agree that we're happy the Golden State Killer is in, in jail, um, that he's not still out there, and that he will be on trial um, at some point for his crimes. Um, yeah, people are worried about basically the giant surveillance state uh, of the 
the police and so forth having access to all this DNA. I think that maybe that's not as big of an issue as some people would like to make it out to be, um, because the one thing about DNA is it does only link to a certain person. There's a case, which I might talk about at another time, where basically a person was identified wrong, but their DNA was at the scene. Um, it's a very complicated case that has to do with uh, an ambulance driver basically not changing his gloves from treating one patient to then going to a crime scene, um, which is very sloppy on his part, but it's an interesting case nonetheless. Um, but yeah, I think there are issues that you can only identify one person through DNA if it's done right. So I, I do see the cops side of this, that they are trying to find this person and they're trying to keep this person from harming more people in the future. There is an issue of privacy, I think, to a degree, but I, I do think that's a more complicated um, conversation than some people are, are willing to have or are currently having. So I might address that maybe in a post on my website um, or an article I might write up and we'll see what happens. Uh, but yeah, so that's the, the story and that's what's happening. So there are changes in, in how officers are going to be able to access some of the information on GEDmatch. So we'll see what effect that has in the next few months, maybe. And this will probably be an ongoing fight and an ongoing story. Um, yeah, so that's interesting for now. Uh, I think that's all the stories we've got at the moment. Thanks for listening. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Again, I'm Josh McIntyre. You can find me on Twitter at McIntyre Science. Um, head up my website, which is scifiction.com, S-C-I-F-I-X-I-O-N. Um, or find me on Patreon if you want to help me keep doing the show. I'm just on Patreon at SciFiction, uh, patreon.com slash SciFiction. Check that out. Um, you know, throw me some money. I'm going to throw some uh, additional content up soon. Uh, if you've got any ideas for what you want me to do for additional content, shoot me an email. Um, you can also shoot my new email, which is the Real Science Podcast, all one word, at SciFiction.com. Um, you can throw tips on there if you want to just say hi or whatever. Um, feel free to do so. Like I said, uh, thanks for listening to the show and hope you enjoyed it. Bye.